This morning, we're going to turn in the Bible to the book of 1 Timothy as we consider a message which will be aimed at fathers, will be instructive, I believe, and corrective in the lives of us who are dads, no matter how long or how little time we've been fathers, you're a father all your life. And that's a good thing, isn't it? It's a pleasure to be a father. God's entrusted children to our care. It's good to have Ariadne Marivani back after several months in Spain on mission. I think I saw her here with her dad and mom and sister today. I think they're here somewhere in the audience. There you are, Ariadne. We're grateful the Lord brought you back safely. We're also grateful that our team to Trinidad came back safely. Some of them have been here this weekend. We need to pray for them. They've got to go back to work Monday, and it's pretty tiring to be on a mission trip, so we want to keep them in our prayers. We have another young man from our church, Jamison Miller, who will be going on mission on Thursday. Just graduated from New Mexico State University. He's going to be serving with Destino, North Africa. He'll be going to North Africa to serve the Lord there. We have a family. Also, the Morgans, Eric and Carla, have been stationed in Saudi Arabia for two years now, I believe, and they'll be returning Eric sooner than Carla, but this week Eric will be returning to Saudi Arabia where he serves the armed forces of the United States there and works with the royal family and the forces that are under them in the medical corps. It's a real blessing to have the opportunity to have people in our church who love the Lord, are not ashamed of the gospel, and are willing to make necessary sacrifices to serve Him in foreign fields. So let's pray, thanking God for these people who have returned and those who are being sent out. Father, we are grateful that You are ascending, God. Thank You that You sent Your Son in the greatest display of love to save us from our sins. And thank you, Jesus, that you gave as one of your last orders, as the Father sent me, so I send you. So we want to always be ready to go, Lord. We thank you for Adiadne's safe return. We pray that the fruit that was born through her life will remain in Spain. We also want to pray that you will be with Jameson Miller as he's taking off for North Africa that you'll guide him, minister to him. Thank you that he's eager to grow in his walk with you. Thank you for that, Lord. Use him. We thank you for the missionaries who went for a week of mission to Trinidad. We ask that they would have a fast and full recovery so they'll be ready to reenter life as usual. On Monday, we pray it wouldn't be life as usual, Lord. It would be extraordinary for them. We pray for Eric and Carla. Thank you for their service to you. Thank you that you sent them at Uncle Sam's expense to serve you in Saudi, and we pray that the return that they will have will be a solid and safe return and one which will be fruitful. Now open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to look, beginning with verse 6 of chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. I'm going to read the passage, make some introductory remarks, and we'll dive headlong into the passage with the desire to learn from the Lord 
about how to be a better father, a better parent, a better person. This applies to all of us. So listen carefully for the voice of the Lord to you today. 1 Timothy 6.6, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now if you'll glance down to verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. It is true, riches have the habit of sprouting wings and flying away, don't they? Have you seen that before in your life? Maybe in 2008 some of you experienced that. But on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Fathers, we are called to teach our children how to live successfully. That departs from what the world would describe as successful living and how one might be successful in this life. When God was speaking to the people of Israel as they were getting ready to go into the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, this is what He said. He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. The things which you have heard from Me today, which I have commanded you, shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Men, as fathers, we have been given the responsibility to teach our children how to be successful. And that is to be found in a relationship that's an all-in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I wish we had time this morning to look at all the various areas of life that we are to acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ in. We're going to focus on one area. It's the concrete area that Jesus emphasized more than any other matter in His teaching. It's the area of money. Our children need to be taught properly about money if they are going to live a successful life. They need to be taught the warnings of Jesus that we cannot love both God and money. They need to be taught that money is a great means to an even greater end to bring glory and honor to God, to extend the kingdom of God, the topic which Jesus spoke more about than any other topic, somewhat abstract, but remember what Jesus teaches us and what we call the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And the way you handle your money as a father... And the way you teach your children the truths of Scripture and then embody those truths in your life 
will be critical to your child's becoming a person whose life matters, not just for time, but for eternity. There are three principles that we're going to consider together this morning from this passage of Scripture as it has to do with our relating to this matter of money. Albert Schweitzer, who earned three doctor's degrees before the age of 30, one in philosophy, one in music, and one in theology, went to Africa and served as a missionary there. He was asked, Dr. Schweitzer, what advice would you give to men about raising their children? What does a child need most from a father? He said there are three things that are necessary. The first is example. The second is example. The third is example. Men, we need to set the pace in our families for our children. We need to be men who reflect what this text that we're looking at today would have us to understand and live out so that our children will not be wrecked on some barrier of monetary or material loss because they do not understand the perspective that God has about how to handle money. Here's the first thing, men. You and I must be content with what we have. Do you find that hard? I find that hard, especially when it comes to this matter of material things. And in this passage of Scripture, in verse 6, the Scripture says, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. I was quite, quite surprised, almost shocked, when I began to study this in more detail and looked at the word in the original language. The word actually translated contentment is a word which means self-sufficient. And by the way, this flies in the face of everything I have banked my spiritual life on. I'm not to be a self-sufficient person. I am to be a God-dependent person. And therein lies the explanation as to why that word is used and can be properly translated as contentment. It's because God lives in me by His Spirit as a result of His choosing me to be His child and my responding properly to His leadership and lordship in my life. Therefore, I have the inner resources and I can be at peace about the circumstances, whether they're good or whether they're bad. Paul knew that. He had good times and bad times in his life. He suffered great loss materially. But because he had his commitment to the person of Jesus Christ in the right framework, he was a man who was able to deal with those kinds of disappointments. Such contentment only belongs to a godly man or a godly woman. What does it mean to be godly? Well, the simplest answer to that question I can give is to be like God. And you say, that's impossible. I'm just a human being. Yes, you are. But you are a person, if you know Jesus Christ, in whom God remarkably has chosen to dwell. He lives in you. And He wants to be in control of your life. And you are a man through whom the Lord can live His life. The Bible actually says in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 that we are to imitate God. 
The Lord would not put such a command in Scripture if it was beyond us to imitate Him. He has given us what we need to imitate Him. He has given us His Son, yes. And the Bible says He has given us the mind of Christ. And where might we find the mind of Christ? The mind of Christ is in the Word of God because all of Scripture is pointing to the person of Jesus Christ and we can go to the Scripture. And also we have received the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ lives in us. If we do not have the Spirit of Christ living in us, Romans 8 9 says, we do not have Christ. If you have Jesus, His Spirit lives in you. And it is the Spirit of God who knows the mind of Christ. And He is our teacher. He brings to remembrance all that Jesus Christ has taught us. Therefore, we are to be godly if we are to be content. And once we have settled the issue of Christ's rightful position in our lives, that He is not simply to have a place in our lives, but He is to have possession of our lives, then we are ready to have the right way of dealing with contentment in our lives. Let's look at verses 7 through 10 a little more carefully. We have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. That's true, isn't it? Job said something like this, if I'm not mistaken. After losing everything, he said, Naked I came forth from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. We are people who enter the world. The playing field is leveled when we enter. It's also leveled when we leave. I read about a man who was a very wealthy man. Two of his friends were discussing his departure after the funeral that they attended to commemorate his life. And one said to the other, I wonder how much he left. And the other man responded rather quickly by saying, all of it. We leave all of it when we leave this world. Just like we read the parable from Luke chapter 12. This man who prospered so much so, his barns were not large enough to contain all the grain. So he began to muse and he began to inquire and then he decided, I'm going to build some more barns. And then after he built his barns and put the excess grain there, he kicked back and spoke to his soul. He said to his soul, take it easy, soul. Prop up your legs. Eat, drink, and be merry. And then God came to him and he said to him, you fool, this very night, your soul is going to be required of you. It's going to be great loss. All that you've accumulated is going to go to somebody else because you have not been rich toward God. Hopefully I'll remember to come back to that last part a bit later. It's very important for us to understand. Look at the next verse. The next verse says, if we have food and covering. Let me stop here just a moment. The words food and covering obviously are singular in the English language, but in the original language of the New Testament, they are both plural. And let me interpret a little bit with that in mind. Let me give you what I believe would be a more helpful interpretation or translation of this introductory clause in verse 8. If we have supplies of food and supplies of covering, with these we shall be content. We will have the necessities of life. We'll have food, and we'll have clothes to wear, and we'll have 
a place to shelter us at night when we rest and sleep. Let's look at the next statement, which is made in verse 9, continuing through verse 10. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation. It's a given. To get rich, if you really aim for that in your life, you're going to encounter temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. This last language is language of one who is drowning. They drown as a result of the fact that they have wanted to get rich and they have given in to the temptation of the devil. Let me pause here just a moment about your discontentment. If you're discontented with what you have, whether it's material or relational or physical, whatever, if you're discontented, you have taken the bait of none other than the devil himself. Remember in the Garden of Eden when Satan came in the form of a serpent to tempt Eve? And he told her, why has the Lord forbidden you to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and evil? Now, let's back up just a moment. How many trees did God give Adam and Eve to eat from in the garden? All the others. We don't know how many species, but a bunch. And isn't it just like the devil to come and... Here was this couple... They had everything in the way of food and he tempted them on one matter. Discontentment is a result of temptation which comes when we want to get rich or we want something which we do not have. The Bible says the last of the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet. You know what that means? You shall not want something that belongs to somebody else or something that God has not deigned to give to you. We need to understand that. Carlisle Marney was the pastor for many years, the First Baptist Church of Austin, Texas. When he was teaching from the Sermon on the Mount in his church, he came to what we call the Lord's Prayer. And there's that famous line which tells us, Give us this day our daily bread. And in interpreting that, this is what he said. What this says to me, Dr. Marnie said, is that I need to get my wanter fixed. I've got a lot of wants that are not in keeping with the will of God. Maybe you need your wanter fixed because you're not content with what God has given you. Let me give you a strategy, if I may, as to how to go about getting content. And this strategy is truly from the Word of God. Look at verse 10, though, before I go there. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Let me pause here. Here again, I was surprised. The translation, love of money, translates only one word in the original language. I thought that would be a word which would suggest just being just extravagant, prodigal in the use of your money, just wasting money. But I came to find out that's not anywhere close to the meaning of the one word which is translated love of money. That one word is a word which depicts a person who loves to hoard his or her money and loves to count it and watch that bank account grow or portfolio grow and grow and grow. And therein lies the pleasure of such an individual. I looked up in preparation for the message today, the world's wealthiest people. 
On number three is Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett is the CEO of a magnificent investment company. Do you know he's worth $83 billion? Can you imagine? $83 billion. And come to find out, he lives in the house which he bought in 1958 in Omaha, Nebraska. He paid $31,500, which was a whole lot of money in 1958. Much more than it would be today. A nice home for sure. But he's decided to live in that even till now, even though he's the third wealthiest person in the world. Now, we have no way to know about what's in his mind. He speaks his mind many times, but we don't know everything about what's in his mind. We do know that he was once raised in a Presbyterian church, was taken faithfully by his U.S. representative father and his mother to church there in Omaha when they were in D.C. They had a church they attended regularly there, but he is now, by his own admission, an agnostic as it relates to Christianity. But I wonder if he's one of those people who is a lover of money, even though he doesn't throw his money away. He's very careful with it. You know, that which we love, we're very careful with, aren't we? Right? This gets a little too close to home for me as I think about it now. But it's a root. It's not the source of all evil, but it's a root. Now, let me be sure that you understand this. Jesus says some things about money that we need to take into account. Speaking of money, he calls it unrighteous mammon. Mammon was the god of money or material things in Jesus' day. Unrighteous mammon. So there is something that's probably inherently tempting, if not evil. Jesus says it, unrighteous mammon. Then he speaks in all of the synoptic Gospels, of the deceitfulness of riches. If something is neutral, it can't be deceitful, can it? But money is deceitful also. We need to keep that in mind. Well, here's the strategy. Four things. Let me suggest to you, Father, what you should incorporate into your life if you're going to be content with what you have. And you moms, too, and you single people. Really, I wish I could have all the singles in the room together, just me and them, and talk to them about this, the men especially, about being the leader in their family when it comes to finances, to being the breadwinner in the family. No knock on women who work, and I understand there are situations which demand that, but I have seen the decline of men wanting to be leaders in their family. And one of the ways they fail to lead is they let their wives do all the work and make all the money. Unbelievable. Well, let's look at these points of strategy. The first is, recognize that all you have comes from God. Did you know that? That's the uniform testimony of Scripture. The Bible says in Second Chronicles 29:12, it's a prayer, David to God, and he says, "Wealth and honor come from you. All the wealth that you have accumulated. Whatever amount it is, it's come from the Lord. Then Moses speaks on God's behalf when he says in Deuteronomy chapter 8 that don't forget that it is God who gives us the power to make wealth. Some people have the Midas touch. I mean, anything they 
try works. And it works in the way of getting them money. God gives you the power to make money. I think of Tevya in Fiddler on the Roof, this Russian Jewish peasant. Do you know what I'm thinking of? He says, if I were a rich man, I won't sing it. I wish I could sing it. And he goes on and he says, I wish I'd be a rich man. And then he says, God, he interrupts his singing. He says, God, if money is cursed, just curse me one time, God. Just curse me. Some of us feel that way, of course, from time to time. But what we understand is, in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, the question is raised. It's a rhetorical question which expects the right answer. What do you have that you did not receive? And the answer is what? Nothing. Everything I have in my possession has been given to me. Please understand, Dad, that you are to be God's money manager for your family. That assumes that you're going to work and the money which you make, you're going to use to meet the needs of your family. You're to be a good steward of those things. The second point of strategy, what's the first one? Recognize that all things come from God. Before I forget it, I want to share this analogy with you. Some of you, I have had the privilege on at least two occasions to be the guest of some very wealthy people. Eon's more wealthy than I. And they were so kind as to let my wife and I go to their residences, which were outside of El Paso city limits, and we had a whole week of vacation. And when I would walk around in these wealthy people's lives, by the way, in both cases, husband and wife love the Lord. And I would in there, go in there and I would see things and I would think of those people and think of how nice it was that they would share those things with me. And then I recalled also something that my father and mother taught me. They said, if you ever borrow anything, return it in at least as good a shape as you found it in when you found it. And I thought, okay. And Sally was raised the same way. And so we did our dead level best to make sure everything was in order and cleaner than it was when we got there. It was clean when we got there. But we wanted to be sure that we left it in good order. Everything in your possession, beginning with your person, beginning with your soul, beginning with your body, and all the money and all the stuff that God's given you, your children, everything, your wife, your husband, if you're here with your husband. All of those things are gifts to you from God. And we're to take good care of them. Here's the second thing we need to recognize. We recognize that it's God's good pleasure as a sovereign God to give some people more than He's given to you. Do you know somebody who has more than you have? Well, there's a lot of people who have more than I do, and I'm grateful for that. What we need to do as brothers and sisters in Christ, in the body of Christ particularly. We need to obey what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Don't become envious of people whom God gives more to than He's given to you. Rejoice with them that He has given them those things and be grateful for what He's given to you.
It remains a mystery, perhaps, as to why He hasn't given you more. Leave that to the Lord. He is a good, good Father. He knows exactly what He wants from your life. Do you remember when Peter was encountered by Jesus after Christ rose from the dead? It was on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They had a conversation, just the two of them. And in the conversation, Jesus gave Peter reaffirmation of his calling and his responsibility to feed the sheep of Christ. And then he said to him, when it comes time for you to die, somebody is going to have to dress you and they're going to take you to a place you do not want to go. We know from extra-biblical historians that Peter died a martyr's death. He was crucified upside down. Certainly, he didn't want to go to be crucified. Nobody in his right mind would. But then, as soon as Jesus had told him that, that someone else would dress him, he would be too old or infirm to dress himself, and someone would take him to a place to die that he didn't want to go. You know what he did? Remember what he did? John was in the vicinity. He said, what about him? He was envying. He was worried about somebody else. Quit worrying about other people. You've got enough to deal with in your own life. Not because I know you, because I know myself. We just need to be grateful for who we are in Christ. Here's a third strategy. Learn the secret of contentment. Paul did. He said in Philippians 4.11, I've learned the secret of being content in each and every situation. Are you content in each and every situation? Here's the answer. I've looked at various ideas and I think the idea is embedded in the passage itself. Rejoice in the Lord always, he says in verse 4 of Philippians 4. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Make your request to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you know... The secret is in that introductory part leading up to his saying, I've learned the secret of being content in each and every situation. Do you know what it is? It's the most overlooked part of the fourth chapter of Philippians. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. He's not simply near. He's here. He's in us if we know the Lord Jesus Christ. Hold your place here and go to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to look at a couple of verses there. Hebrews 13, beginning with verse 5. Now, men, are you thinking about this in relationship to your responsibility to teach the commands of the Lord diligently to your sons and your daughters? Think of it. This is critical to their success. There's no success apart from being in a position of submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5 of Hebrews 13. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Same word that Paul uses in the book of 1 Timothy 6 regarding the love of money. Being content, same word, with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. That's the answer. That's the answer to contentment. The answer is to be found in Jesus being not just somewhere, but being with us because He lives in us. 
To live the Christian life, we must have the presence of Christ as our main possession. We're to trust in Him in that sense. So, the fourth thing is this, after having learned the secret, is to set a new standard for contentment. If you're reading through the map journal, you're in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 36 says, Incline, incline or turn my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. I have taken to reminding myself of that and praying that prayer to the Lord regularly in my quiet time so that I would be reminded of how important it is that I trust in the Lord alone for my life. And I have the idea that was represented in Paul's life, but also in a man named Asaph's life in Psalm 73, which he penned under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He said this, Whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? Besides you, whom do I desire on earth? That's the goal. We know, men, sometimes we don't have that kind of desire. But we need to practice these things. William C. DeVries, who was the first medical doctor to put an artificial heart in a human being, the man lived 112 days in whom this artificial heart was placed. In writing about this, this man said this, Dr. DeVries. He said, the reason you do the same thing over and over again, the reason you practice is so that you will do it automatically when the time of reckoning comes. Over and over again. Look, we need to practice the things of God. We need to do what God says in His Word. We need to remember what He has to say. When He says in Luke 12, a person's life or soul does not consist in the abundance of his or her her possession. So, be content with what you have. Here's the second thing. Be confident in God. And we can be confident in God because of His character. He does not lie. And because of His promises. We just read one, didn't we? In Hebrews 13, what's the last line of that verse? I will never depart from you. I'll never forsake you. Isn't that comforting? You have the Lord with you no matter what. And then look at the rest of this in verse 6. So that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? We have the Lord. He's quoting from Psalm 118 here. We have the Lord with Him. We have everything we will ever need. And He is faithful to keep His promise to provide for our every need because of His great concern for us. Teach your children to put their confidence in God, not in money. You will do it by your example, but teach them the truths of God's Word as well. Here's the third thing that we need to teach our children verbally, but visually as well. Be concerned for others. Let's look at verse 17 through 19. Instruct those who are rich in this present world. Let's pause a moment. Evidently, there were people in the church of Jesus Christ that Timothy was pastor of who were rich. There is no condemnation on those who have become legitimately rich. Maybe they inherited the money. Maybe they were people who were gifted in making money. So there's nothing 
evil in being rich. The Bible has several people who are rich, beginning with Abraham and so forth and so on. Those who are rich in this present world, teach them not to be conceited. Don't think you're better than somebody else because you have the money to live in a better home or drive a nicer car or wear better clothes or go to a better university. Don't think of yourself as being better. Remember, everything you have has been given to you by God. Or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Wow. Riches are fleeting, aren't they? I remember reading one day in Scripture, if riches increase, do not put your trust in them. That's a good thing to think about. If your riches do increase, don't trust them. But put your trust in God. We've already talked about that. Be confident in God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Do you know whatever has been put into your trust is for your enjoyment? Now, I'm going to get ahead of myself just a moment. The greatest joy that will come to you or me or anyone else as it relates to our riches is to share them with other people. It's the greatest joy. It reflects a heart that's centered in Christ. It's a godly heart who doesn't want to just hoard the money but wants to share it and has eyes to see people to share it with. The passage goes on to say, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works. This takes me back again to the parable of this wealthy man. And it came that he died and he didn't get to enjoy all the things that he had banked his comfort on. And the Word of God says he was not rich toward God. Do you know how you can be rich toward God? Sharing with others, caring for others. There are various means whereby you and I can do that. Proverbs 22.9 says, The generous man will be blessed, for he shares his food with the poor. Share your food with the poor. Share part of your resources. After you give your money to the ministry of the Lord in your local church, look for opportunities to share. It's a great joy that comes with that. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. When they come and ask for your help, don't say, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you then. Listen to the Lord. Do what the Lord says. That's what the writer of Proverbs says. Minister to people in the name of Jesus. Look for people whom you can be used to touch. Wealth is like manure, E. Stanley Jones wrote. Gathered in one place, it stinks. But spread out over a field, it's a golden harvest. Amen? Amen. Now, look, one last thing, and I save the best for last, I think. Let's go to chapter 5 for just a moment. Verse 8. Fathers, listen carefully. 1 Timothy 5.8. If anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household. This would be for your relatives. The context of this is the charge to sons and grandsons to take care of their grandmothers and their mothers who have become widows. To care for them. It's our privilege, men. Think about your mother. Think about her mother or your father's mother who is your grandmother. Have they poured into your life? There's no way they should be on the welfare rolls. There's no way that they should live hand-to-mouth 
they have been given a son or a grandson to minister to them. Do it, men. That's what the Word of God says. Otherwise, you have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. That's harsh, isn't it? It's true, though. It's unimaginable that we'd be worse than an unbeliever. The theology of enough is what we should hope for. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8. says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you, and say, Who's the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Don't give me poverty, Lord. I'm afraid I'll steal to take care of my family. And who wouldn't if that was what was needed? So I don't want poverty, Lord. There's no virtue in poverty. But don't give me riches either because I'll become too arrogant. I'll become too independent. I won't have time for you. I'll say, who is the Lord? I'm doing fine without the Lord. But give me enough, the theology of enough. Here are the two rules rules for the theology of, of enough. Just two simple things. The first one is, and they're obvious, put God first and your possessions second. Don't make a God out of the things in your life. Don't do it. Put God first. Here's the second rule. And the last. Possessions are to be used and not loved. Don't love your things. See them as a means to the end that God has created them for. And glorify God through your use of them. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the Word of God. Help us as men and women to take seriously these truths regarding our relationship to money. Make our church a church that has the proper perspective on material things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Father's Day.